face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. This nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Hello and welcome to episode 10 of the Policy Dialogue Series with alumni, staff, faculty, and students from the University of Maryland. The views expressed do not represent official positions of the school or alumni network. Our goal is to discuss global issues and how we can solve local, national, and international challenges. We are recording this on December 3rd, 2020. My name is Evan Papp. I graduated from the School of Public Policy, class of 2011, with a focus on international security and economic policy. And I'm the executive producer of Empathy Media Lab, which creates content on labor, political economy, arts, and culture. Joining me is Dr. Julie Green, who is professor of history at the University of Maryland College Park, focusing on labor, immigration, and empire. She received a BA degree in history from the University of Michigan, a BA and MA degree in history from the University of Cambridge, and a PhD in history from Yale University. She is the author of numerous books, including The Canal Builders, Making America's Empire at the Panama Canal. Julie is the founding co-director of the Center for Global Migration Studies at the University of Maryland, and she is also the past president of the Labor and Working Class History Association. Julie, I'm very much looking forward to this discussion. How are you doing? I'm doing great, and it's, I'm looking forward to chatting with you. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you. So can you talk a little bit about your background and how you first got interested in labor history and why you think others should care about this? Absolutely. So I've always been, I love history, and I've always been interested as a historian in um, how power works, and especially interested in thinking about history from the bottom up, thinking about how oppressed people, um, whether they're oppressed as a result of their socioeconomic class or their race or their gender, how they deal with structures of power and how they find ways to, you know, exercise some agency. Um, so that, all of that sort of led me to labor history. Um, it was a very uh, particularly hot area of research when I was an undergraduate. Um, I'm originally from a small town in Nebraska, so people always say, how could a kid from Nebraska end up studying labor? But um, for me, it was just uh, an entry point into a whole range of fascinating questions about how society works, about the history of capitalism and workers' place in it. Um, and of course, you know, as, as the United States has entered the 21st century, um, we've seen that workers' rights have eroded uh, tremendously. Workers in the United States have, have fewer rights than just about anywhere in the global north. Um, and so that makes it especially fascinating to kind of to understand the, the history of workers and think about how we got to that point today. And coming from the Midwest, I also came from Michigan and uh, did my undergrad at University of Michigan. Mm -hmm. And there was some populist uh, growth from, I believe, like the farmers in, in the Midwest in Minnesota and Nebraska. And, and uh, did you, was that any 
part of your consciousness growing up or were you growing up in a, did you know anyone in unions growing up or was this something more of focusing on like systematic power that you kind of started exploring later on? Interesting question. No, it was actually kind of the opposite. I, I didn't grow up around people who were in unions uh, quite the opposite, although I'm from Nebraska, which is farming community. Um, my father was actually uh, an executive at one of the largest factories in um, Lincoln. Um, and so if I was exposed to labor issues, it was kind of in, a, in the um, opposite way. It was because my father was his name, he was the chief of accounting at this uh, Goodyear factory and his name was on all the checks. And I remember just kind of wondering about this place where he worked and wondering about the workers' lives. And um, he would come home sometimes, you know, kind of proud of the work he had done, working a double shift when the workers were on strike to help break the strike. Um, and so I think that kind of combined with just intellectual interests when I went to college, uh, you know, it wasn't a reaction against my family background. It was more just that this was a hot area. And growing up, I had, I had gotten my curiosity aroused by watching him do his factory experience every day. And uh, before I move on to the next question about Cambridge, what was it like focusing on labor at that time? Because I, it seems like that was kind of the turn towards Reagan and Thatcher and some of the policies that um, really attacked uh, some of the rights of organized labor. And yeah, I, I'm kind of curious about the culture back then. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I got, I really got um, fascinated with labor issues while I was a student at Cambridge. I was studying British and European history then. And um, my originally, my what really took me to labor issues was touring towns in the Welsh mining valleys, um, and so I, I got fascinated by the miners' experiences and wrote a thesis on that. And that was in the early '80s, so it was right as Thatcherism was taking over and miners were feeling more and more desperate. Um, and then when I came back to the US, I decided to switch and do US history instead of European, but keep the labor focus and um, started grad school at Yale working with a person who was at that time pretty much the premier labor historian in the US, David Montgomery. And, um, you know, that was the heyday of Reaganism. And I remember then some of my union friends would say, well, Reagan's in office, it's going to be a horrible time for union organizing or anything progressive. We might as well just stop trying and go raise a family now and try again in a few years. Ha. Of course, in retrospect, Reagan, Reagan was an important turning point, but by today's standards, he would be seen as quite the moderate, you know, because this country has shifted so radically to the right and has so turned against workers' rights since that time. So you teach a course called Workers of Global Capitalism, which examines the field of global labor and working class history and its relationship to the history of global capitalism. So could you discuss what this course is about and why you wanted to teach it? 
Sure, yeah. Um, yeah, it's one of the funnest classes I teach. Um, let me just preface by saying that my interest in history is now very much about global relationships and transnational history. Um, the discipline of history uh, has always been one that really is bounded by nation states. Um, you know, history emerged as a discipline in order to tell the story of different nation states. And so one of the most exciting things happening in the, our discipline in the last 20 years or so has been trying to problematize how we think about how history works and realize that it's not just contained neatly within territorial boundaries, but history flows, people flow across territorial boundaries, capital does, culture, commodities, all of it flows across. And so there's been a movement among historians to, to um, think more globally, more transnationally about those flows that cut across boundaries. So that's what my work um, centers on. My last book on the making of the Panama Canal is an example of that. So this course on global capitalism and labor just tries to put that all into um, effect with our graduate students, give them a chance to really try to think conceptually about what it would mean to analyze um, the working class in a global environment. Um, think about the US working class, but think about it in interaction with workers all over the world how are our lives, um, how is the labor of people in the United States, for example, shaped by what's happening in Asia, uh, what's happening in Latin America, in Europe. We know, that, um, we know that capitalism is global, right? Increasingly global. Capital is moving rapidly around the world. Supply chains are shaping every aspect of our lives today, our lives are um, so connected to what uh, workers in Bangladesh or, or Pakistan are doing. And so it's really important for historians to think that way too, to think about conceptualizing the working class as, as a global class. So that's what the, the course does. It looks globally at capitalism, but it also looks globally at um, workers' lives, workers' agency, and looks at efforts to, um, to connect workers across. You know, that's one of the greatest challenges today with supply chains is figuring out a way to build a, a, a labor movement that, that can deal with global supply chains. So we take up those kinds of questions. I think one of my favorite quotes from Lincoln is where he talks about how labor precedes capital and that without labor, you can't create value in capital. It's labor that actually is the one that forms capital. And oftentimes, as you just said, labor and capital are separated, just like I think it used to be political economy and now it's just economics and they've taken out the politics and kind of um, obscured the idea that politics is central to economics as well. Uh, but teaching on capitalism, it, you know, after Francis Fukuyama said, you know, the end of history, it's almost like capitalism is supreme and th this is the only system. And obviously that thought has been, um, you know, undermined with current events. However, 
focusing on a critique of capitalism in public universities, this may be a different discussion, but uh, have you had challenges at times um, critiquing capitalism in a, a very pro-capitalistic uh, culture and setting? You know, not so much because I think, you know, I, I know that um, there are some people on the right who think that um, the professors are brainwashing people from a liberal perspective or whatever. And I, I always think that what they don't get is that a good professor, all, all we want is students who are engaged and critically thinking. And so I, you know, I love it when I have a student who sees things differently from the way I do. And if I'm, you know, if I'm talking about workers' rights and, and they are from the business school and say, well, you're not giving enough attention to employers' rights or employers' prerogatives, I, you know, I value it because it brings another voice into the debate. It helps students articulate their differences and get more sophisticated in their thinking. Um, so, uh, so no, I haven't, I haven't felt that as a, as a problem at all. So focusing on policy a little bit, uh, migration, as you mentioned, and immigration has been going on since the beginning of time. Uh, the, the movement of peoples is uh, as natural as, as anything uh, human, I guess. And I guess what historical examples could you cite where governments have gotten the question of immigration right, or at least what's some of the best of worst immigration policies, or even what are some of the worst policies you've seen, you know, maybe even in the Panama Canal uh, book that you wrote? Mm -hmm. uh, well, it's a funny question, only because it's pretty hard to answer. I mean, it's hard to say when people have gotten it terribly right, to be honest. Um, I might frame it a little bit differently about like how, how can we see as historians when immigration policies become more fair or more open. Um, they tend to be more open when a country needs the labor. Um, and so in the US in the 19th century, <clears throat> today in some countries like Spain and Italy feel like they need workers, so they're relatively more open. Um, but the, the problem comes, and one of the things my students study a lot um, in my undergraduate classes is when countries decide it's too much, what, what shapes the policies as they become um, stricter. And that's where, especially in the case of the US, which I know the best, we really see race and ethnicity shaping things so much. Um, uh, a commissioner of immigration once said, and this, this quote to me can be used to explore almost any period of US history. He said, the real problem is that we want willing subjects who will do the work without thinking. But some people want people who will become good citizens. And the problem is those are not the same people. And that sort of tension is at so much at the heart of not just U.S. immigration history, but really all of U.S. history 
um, needing people who will work for cheap and not complain and easily disciplined, but then also thinking, well, we need to build a society. And those same people who we hire because they work cheap aren't necessarily who we want as our citizens. And from that tension comes, you know, all these efforts to keep out certain people, to keep out the Chinese or to end Italian and Jewish immigration. Or today we see really a rebirth of this kind of restrictionist sentiment where, you know, uh, Steve Miller and the people advising President Trump have worked very, very hard to try and ensure that only people who are like us, us being um, white people from Northern and Western European countries are the only ones who are able to enter the, the country. So race and ethnicity and anxieties about those and notions of who deserves to be an American has, has shaped things all along the way. Even the most cold-hearted cynic, when they look at immigration, I sometimes question them on the, the aspect of demographic uh, crises that is being seen in many, many countries where when you have a, a very large elder population and all of Western Europe, China, Japan, they all have demographic crisis that the, the, the population is not growing fast enough to take care of the some of the oldest people who are retiring. And in the US, the immigration is actually, the only reason we don't have a demographic crisis is because of the immigration. And so it's a national asset. And, and the other aspect is, you know, on one side you have on the most uh, flagrant uh, labor violations is chattel slavery, where you're pre preventing your, your labor from learning literacy. But in some ways, you know, that's asset stripping your labor to the point where you're not, you're, you want your labor to be able to solve problems as quickly as possible and to develop new means of production and, and to new solutions to the problems that you face. Uh, and one is about control and the other one is about the potentiality of labor and you wanna invest in your labor population, you wanna grow your labor population. Uh, so on, on the, like, the coldest calculating uh, ideas of national security and, and economics, it seems like, it's, it's just a no-brainer. You want to invest in your labor population. You want immigration. And the fact that immigrants still want to come here despite all of the problems, that's a, that's a huge asset that the United States still has um, despite the last four years of, of anti-immigration sentiment. It is. I mean, you, and you're absolutely right about the demographic boost from immigration in this country. And yet, um, as a result of that, you know, I think one thing we don't pay enough attention to is that we have this crisis happening in the country right now, which is unprecedented in our history, which is having t somewhere around 12 to 15 million people who live in the shadow because, they're in, because of their immigration status, because they don't have documents. Um, and the ways in which that um, allows them to be exploited, to work for low wage, to lack fundamental rights that we take for granted as constitutional rights if we're citizens is a huge, huge problem. And um, I think one of the things I really focus on in my teaching is understanding what that means for us as Americans to have that. 
Um, I think the anti-immigrant movement has done a, a really effective job of dehumanizing those people by portraying them as, you know, illegal aliens, um, by, by creating this, this dynamic, this sense that to give them more rights is to diminish our rights as citizens. And I think we need to communicate the opposite message that it diminishes this country to have so many people living in those circumstances. It diminishes our democracy, our sense of ourselves as an, an equitable nation, a nation that where people have rights. So um, that's one of the things that my students are really uh, concerned about in the, the classes I've been teaching recently is how can we communicate a better message about that and work harder to deal with that problem. So I went onto your Twitter feed and I saw that you tweeted something out about your migration studies class that you just wrapped up and that you had a really hot discussion uh, with the students and even going to the point of discussing about um, open borders and things like that. I, it's, I've taught a little bit uh, and I, I absolutely, you feed off the energy of the students. And I, can you talk a little bit about this last class that uh, you wrote about on Twitter? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I've just had such a great time teaching this class. So it's, an, it's a lower level class, Introduction to Immigration and Migration Studies. So it's interdisciplinary, but because I'm a historian, it has a pretty strong historical focus. Um, to make it interdisciplinary, the way I've structured it is we began with the present day um, to understand what's been happening around immigration in the last four years. And then we went back into history to try to use, teach the students how to use history to understand and critique the present. Um, and so their assignments have all been to write not traditional academic papers, but to write op-eds where they connect the history of immigration in the U.S. to the present day. Um, so uh, this was our last class of the semester where we'd be having a lecture and discussion and we were focusing on um, efforts by immigrants and their allies to change that conversation, that message I was just talking about. And um, as we discussed, one of the students raised the question of, well, why do we even have a border? Why can't we let people cross borders whenever they want to? And she made a, uh, a pitch for that. And so, of course, that became a hot debate. I have a lot of criminology majors in the class and econ majors and a couple business school students. And so they had a lot of views on this and, you know, a lot of ideas about why we can't, why, we, why a nation state doesn't want to have an open border, right? That it could generate more human trafficking, it could generate um, more of a national security problem. Um, but on the other hand, the students who were arguing for open borders had a strong case too. And they said, well, look, if capital can flow across borders wherever it wants in the Western hemisphere, people should be able to move too. Why do you let capital flow to the places where workers can be paid the least and not let the workers move to wherever the jobs are the best? So those were the kinds of uh, positions we were debating. Well, I really hope people from the School of uh, Public Policy 
look at what you're doing and uh, check out the Migration Center as well. And so in closing, uh, looking into the future of labor and migration, where do you see opportunity and hope? Well, I think we're in a really tough period for both, um, for some of the reasons you know we've talked about. Um, this country is obviously in the worst position it's been in, in terms of either immigrants' rights or labor rights um, in decades. Um, so I think the, the, where I would look to for hope is, um, has to start with uh, sending out a better message about those things. Um, you know, think about what are the fundamental rights that, um, that we have come to assume we have, we deserve as citizens. And think about, do workers really have those rights once they enter the workplace? The answer is no. Very often they don't. If they don't have the right to a union, they don't have the right to freedom of assembly or freedom of speech. They can be fired without cause. Um, so that right to a union, that right to organize collectively, should be seen as just as, as fundamental as any other right that we have. Um, I think communicating that message and likewise communicating a message that we're all hurt by having 12 million people in our country who have to live in the shadows as almost sort of an inferior caste um, is a problem for me and a problem for you, Evan. Um, I think that's where we start. Uh, that wouldn't get us all the way there. There are a few other things that would have to happen for it to be a truly a brighter day for workers or for immigrants, but, but that would be a good start.